You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's January 22nd, 1815, in an open field near what today is Mobile, Alabama. Colonel G.C. Russell sits on his horse. Behind him, 1,500 American troops standing at attention. On the ground below him is a row of six pine coffins. A wagon grinds to a halt near the front of a large crowd of spectators who gather around the soldiers. As an armed guard hops out of the wagon, Russell rides up to meet him. Colonel Russell, sir. At ease. The colonel dismounts and peers into the back of the wagon where he sees six American prisoners. The colonel stiffens his spine and speaks. On the charge of mutiny, you men are hereby sentenced to death. You have been brave in the field. Do no discredit to your country, the army, or yourselves by any unmanly fears now. Die like men. From the back of the wagon, one of the soldiers, a man named Henry Lewis, musters the courage to speak. Colonel... Will you give me leave to say a few words? Go on, son. I love my country dearly, and would, if I could, serve it longer and better. I have fought bravely, you know I have, and here I have a right to say, I do not wish to die this way. Lewis's voice quivers for an instant, but he stifles the tears and soldiers on. I did not expect this, but as I have been firm in battle, you shall see I will die as becomes a soldier. The colonel takes no pleasure in executing his own men. But orders are orders. He turns to the guard, line them up. Yes, colonel. The prisoners are taken from the wagon and led to the front of the crowd, each of them forced to kneel on top of one of the coffins. Guards cover their heads with white caps. Dozens of armed soldiers step forward, lined up in front of the prisoners, and take aim. Colonel Russell calls out, Fire! Five of the prisoners fall dead instantly, but Henry Lewis topples over, wincing and writhing in pain. The colonel runs to his side. I'm cut to pieces, sir. Steady, Lewis. Did I... did I behave well, sir? Like a man. Have I atoned, sir? Shall I live, sir? Hearing Lewis's plea for mercy, the colonel defies his orders and calls out, Doctor! Send for a doctor now! Colonel Russell ordered a surgeon to save Lewis's life, but there was nothing to be done. He would die four days later. The man who ordered the execution was future President Andrew Jackson. In January 1815, General Andrew Jackson rose to national fame after his victory at the Battle of New Orleans, seen by most Americans as the battle that brought an end to the War of 1812. His fame made him a player on the national scene, but his complicated past and his violent tendencies made him vulnerable to political attacks. To the elitist Washington establishment, the brutish, hot-headed frontiersman from Tennessee lacked the temperament for politics, much less the highest office in the land. The establishment believed that Andrew Jackson would never be president, and the establishment would be wrong.
Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. Andrew Jackson's first run at the White House was in the election of 1824. Out of a crowded field of five candidates, two frontrunners emerged, General Andrew Jackson and Secretary of State John Quincy Adams. After the votes were tallied, neither had a clear majority. So for the second time in U.S. history, the contest was decided in the House of Representatives. Adams won decisively on the first ballot. But Jackson and his supporters cried foul, accusing Adams of stealing the presidency. Jackson's camp alleged that Henry Clay used his influence as Speaker of the House to swing the election for Adams in exchange for a political post, Secretary of State. They called it the corrupt bargain. Adams and Clay denied the accusation of a quid pro quo, but when Clay was appointed Secretary of State almost immediately, Jackson's supporters in the Tennessee legislature nominated Jackson for president four years before the election of 1828. The contest in 1824 laid bare a fundamental disagreement in America, a conflict that split the Democratic-Republicans right in half. Two new factions began to form, 
Those who favored a limited federal government were called Democrats. Those who favored expanding the role of the federal government were called National Republicans. In the election of 1828, the Democratic faction found their champion in Andrew Jackson. The National Republican faction backed incumbent President John Quincy Adams. Jackson supporters felt their candidate was robbed in the election of 1824. In the years that followed, they exacted their revenge by fighting to dethrone President Adams and also turning to Secretary of State Henry Clay to cut him off at the knees. This is Episode 11, 1828, The General's Vengeance. It's March 31, 1826, in Washington. General Thomas S. Jessup, the U.S. Army Quartermaster, sits outside an office at the State Department, waiting. Earlier that morning, Jessup received a summons from one of the most powerful men in Washington, former Speaker of the House and current Secretary of State, Henry Clay. General Jessup doesn't know for sure, but he has a pretty good idea why Clay sent for him. Just yesterday, on the floor of the Senate, Virginia Senator John Randolph spoke some very inflammatory words about President Adams and his Secretary of State. Jessup knows his friend Henry Clay cannot let Randolph's words stand. <clears throat> Secretary Clay, General Jessup, sorry to keep you waiting. It's quite fine, sir. Come in, come in, please. Of course. What can I do for you, Mr. Clay? As his face reddens with anger, Clay produces a letter and hands it to Jessup. See for yourself. As Jessup reads Clay's fiery words, he sighs with apprehension. Mr. Clay, will you deliver this to Senator Randolph? Is this wise, sir? He has insulted my honor, General. There is no denying that. His attacks on my character yesterday were unprovoked and beyond the pale. You'll hear no argument from me there. Only, only what? Is this a prudent course of action? You heard what the man said. I did not hear the precise words, only their general character. He called me a cheat and the president a miser on the floor of the Senate. Mr. Clay, you have been wronged. Of this, there is no doubt. Any reasonable man would agree. Only consider for a moment the advantages such an altercation would provide your enemies. You would be giving them sufficient cause to seek your removal from this office. No public station, no, not even life itself is worth holding if coupled with dishonor. He will retract his statement or I shall have no choice but to demand satisfaction. Will you deliver the letter? Will you stand by me and serve as my second? If you command it, I do. Very well. I'm at your service, Mr. Secretary. John Randolph's critics often said he had a big mouth. In the first year of the Adams administration, amidst the cries of corruption, Randolph had used his prominent station to repeatedly attack Adams and Clay on the floor of the Senate. Henry Clay had expected a fair amount of pushback to his appointment as Secretary of State. The alleged corrupt bargain was bound to produce conflict, not to mention the American system. Clay's bold economic plan, inspired in part by Alexander Hamilton, had plenty of opponents, especially in the South. And during his confirmation proceedings, Clay had been raked over the coals. He had fallen sick and frail, weary of the attacks being lobbed at him in Congress. He would fight that illness and the attacks in Congress for the entirety of the Adams administration. He would be called incompetent, corrupt, detestable. But Henry Clay was a Western man brought up in the Western tradition. And above all, he valued honor. And in late March 1826, John Randolph stepped over the line. Clay decided enough was enough. Randolph's incivility had gotten him in trouble many times. He had also been challenged to a duel once before, but had declined, refusing to stoop so low. This time, though, was different. 
Clay was challenging Randolph for words he had spoken on the floor of the Senate, words protected by the debate clause in the Constitution. Randolph felt he had no choice but to stand for the duel. So on the second week of April 1826, Randolph and Clay met on the banks of the Potomac. Randolph fired first, purposely missing. Clay's first shot tore through Randolph's trousers. On the second round, Clay fired first. Miraculously, the bullet passed through Randolph's coat and missed him entirely. Randolph ended the duel by firing one last shot at the sky. As he left, he remarked, You owe me a coat, Mr. Clay. Bloodshed had been narrowly avoided, but the duel in Congress waged on. Randolph, a newly converted Jackson supporter, continued to lambast Adams and Clay in the Senate. Under normal circumstances, the Clay-Randolph duel, as it would come to be called, would have given Adams enemies ammunition. His Secretary of State had tried to kill a member of the United States Senate for words he had spoken in that chamber. But by and large, Jackson's supporters were silent. That's because Andrew Jackson had a bloody history of his own. Jackson's conduct before and during the War of 1812 was not the only political strike against him. He had participated in many duels, though the exact number is disputed. In 1805, a man named Charles Dickinson had called Jackson a coward and insulted his honor. In response, Jackson had challenged him to a duel, shot, and killed him. During that duel, Jackson had been shot in the chest. The bullet lodged just a few inches from his heart. He would carry that bullet for the rest of his life. Stories like these had contributed to Jackson's reputation for toughness, a toughness befitting the nickname Jackson had earned during the War of 1812, Old Hickory. His gunslinging past had made him a legend in the rough-and-tumble West, but he was also his greatest political liability. In the election of 1824, his opponents had used his violent past to cast Jackson as a brute and a savage, unfit for the office of president. Still, Jackson had largely overcome those criticisms. He had lost the contingent election in the House of Representatives, but he had won the popular vote. But in the 1828 contest, Jackson's supporters would have to overcome a new onslaught of attacks, and they would do it on the wave of a popular democratic movement. On July 4, 1826, a massive celebration was held in Washington. Citizens came from far and wide to commemorate the 50th anniversary of America's independence. All across the nation, cities, towns, and villages held celebrations. But only a few days later, after President John Quincy Adams attended a ceremony in the Capitol building and welcomed guests, both friends and strangers, to the White House for celebrations, Adams received news that he described as strange and striking. Two former presidents had passed away, Thomas Jefferson and his father, John Adams. Both men died on July 4th, 50 years to the day they had signed the Declaration of Independence. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had been ideological opponents. Adams was a Federalist, Jefferson a Democratic Republican. But in spite of their differences, the two remained friends. They lived to see the Federalist Party die and the Democratic Republican Party unravel. John Quincy Adams would write of his father's death, the time, the manner, the coincidence with the decease of Jefferson are visible and palpable marks of divine favor. But Andrew Jackson saw it differently. In the summer of 1826, he wrote to a friend, Is the death of Mr. Adams a confirmation of the approbation of divinity? Or is it an omen that his political example as president and adopted by his son shall destroy this holy fabric created by the virtuous Jefferson? Jackson's supporters had nominated him four years before the 1828 election. 
As a result, for perhaps the first time in U.S. history, the midterm was part and parcel of Jackson's presidential campaign. Winning the midterm meant controlling the reins of power, blocking the Adams agenda, and using the political machinery in Washington to Jackson's advantage. And thanks to superior organization and a nationwide coalition, pro-Jackson candidates swept the election. They retained control in the Senate and gained control of the House. Among the men who kept his seat was Senator Martin Van Buren, future President of the United States. In 1826, Van Buren was planting seeds that would sprout into the Democratic Party, but he was not yet a Jackson supporter. Van Buren was still considering his options, and though he didn't have a candidate, he did have a plan. In 1826, the old party labels of Federalist and Democratic-Republican had all but faded away. Classic partisanship was on the decline. Van Buren's strategy was to bring it back. The Founding Fathers had argued against political parties. George Washington had believed that they would divide and destroy America. He had written that political parties are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. Van Buren argued the opposite. We must always have party distinctions, and the old ones are the best of which the nature of the case admits. His strategy was to cast the election of 1828 as a contest between the elite men who favored an expansion of federal government and those true patriots who opposed it, in many ways, resurrecting the disagreement between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. The only remaining question for Van Buren was which candidate gave the Democrats the best chance of winning. Jackson and Van Buren had not exactly been political allies. In the New York gubernatorial election of 1819, Jackson had thrown his support behind Van Buren's political nemesis, DeWitt Clinton. And in the presidential election of 1824, Van Buren had backed Treasury Secretary William Crawford over Jackson. Still, the hero of New Orleans was becoming a political force of nature. He had risen to the top of a crowded presidential field, trounced William Crawford, and emerged as the candidate of choice for the American West. So in Jackson, Van Buren saw an opportunity to unite the frontiersmen of the West with the old Republicans in the South and the Democrats in the North. This coalition of anti-federalist constituents would call themselves Democrats, and a limited federal government would be the bedrock of their alliance. The combination, as Van Buren called it, would unite the people, cool tensions between North and South, and calm what Van Buren called the growing clamor against Southern influence and African slavery. In short, the little magician, as Van Buren was known, hoped the magic of the combination would guarantee Jackson's victory. As Van Buren would write to a friend, you may rest assured, the re-election of John Quincy Adams is out of the question. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at intohistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com.
Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's winter, 1826, in Virginia. New York Senator Martin Van Buren is a long way from home. He sits alone by the fire at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Fitzhugh of Ravenswood, where he'll spend the holidays. But Van Buren's visit to Virginia is not strictly pleasure. He's journeyed south to make inroads with another holiday guest of the Fitzhughes, Vice President John C. Calhoun. Mr. Van Buren. Ah, Mr. Vice President. May I sit? By all means. Calhoun pulls up a chair and joins Van Buren by the fire. I must say, after all that business with the election, it's nice to enjoy some peace and quiet among friends, far away from the noise of the Capitol. (laughs) I quite like the noise, actually, though I certainly enjoyed our time together here. Are we friends, Mr. Van Buren? Yes. Glad to hear it. Is there something on your mind, Mr. Calhoun? I want you to know I've given some thought to our conversation regarding Mr. Adams. Calhoun is Adams' vice president, but since they've arrived in Virginia, Van Buren has been pressing the issue of whether or not Adams deserves the second term. And what are your thoughts, Mr. Calhoun? Mr. Adams is a fine man, a decent man, but ill-equipped for the office of the presidency. I agree. I'm aware you agree. Have you resolved yourself to cut him loose? Calhoun nods his head yes. Whatever political fraternity existed between me and him, and between me and his supporters is is severed. Well, this is excellent news. I know you and I have not always seen eye to eye, but I also consider you a friend. I will support you and Mr. Jackson in the upcoming election. Do we also agree a national convention is the best course? It is the only course. Well then. Van Buren offers his hand, and Calhoun takes it. In the winter of 1826, the vice president defected to Jackson's nascent Democratic faction and brought with him the entire electoral power of South Carolina. He agreed to stand as Jackson's running mate. And with Calhoun's loyalty secure, Van Buren set his sights on another state, Virginia. Not long after his holiday visit with Calhoun, Van Buren would write a letter to Thomas Ritchie, the editor of the Richmond Inquirer the newspaper of choice for the old Republicans in Virginia. In the letter, Van Buren laid out his case for Andrew Jackson. The party of President Adams was not the party of true democratic ideals. It was the party of the elite. To unite against Adams, an organized political party was required. Van Buren wrote that Jackson had one path to victory, a combined effort of a political party holding in the main to certain tenets and opposed to certain prevailing principles. In his letter to Ritchie, Van Buren argued, Political combinations are unavoidable, and the most natural and beneficial to the country is that between the planters of the South and the plain Republicans of the North. Taking his cue, 
In the spring of 1827, Ritchie and the Inquirer endorsed Jackson, calling on Virginians to circumscribe the sweep of the general government within its constitutional limits and restore the good old era of the Jeffersonian school. But Van Buren's combination strategy was a complication for Jackson, who never publicly endorsed it. His constituents in the West desperately needed federal aid. To them, Clay's American system was a necessity, not an abomination. The South, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with federal intervention. They wanted to protect their industry, agriculture, and slavery. For Van Buren's combination to work, Jackson would have to navigate, or at least sidestep, these conflicting regional differences. In the spring of 1827, after Congress adjourned, Van Buren took another trip south to drum up support for Jackson. After stopping in South Carolina to gladhand with friends of Calhoun, Van Buren made a stop in Georgia to see former Treasury Secretary William Crawford, the man Van Buren had backed in the election of 1824. The visit was necessary because Crawford was essential to Van Buren's coalition. While Crawford could perhaps tolerate Andrew Jackson as president, Calhoun as vice president was a bridge too far, in large part because of the rhetoric they had exchanged on the campaign trail in 1824. During their visit, Crawford told Van Buren he would never support Calhoun, but he also wouldn't stand in Van Buren's way. With what might be called a pledge of non-aggression from Calhoun, Van Buren continued his time in the South, spending two months out on the road, traveling from South Carolina to Georgia, then to Washington, shaking hands, forging alliances, and building support for Andrew Jackson. The next step was mobilizing Jackson's supporters and getting them behind a new mechanism of party machinery, partisan conventions. In 1824, Van Buren had stubbornly held to the National Caucus system known as King Caucus. He had held on even after it became clear the majority of Americans no longer wanted it. His stubbornness had produced a National Caucus, but the result was grim. The majority of congressmen did not even show up. Van Buren still maintained that the nascent Democratic faction needed to rally behind a single national candidate in order to ensure victory. But seeing that a national convention attended only by Washington elite, rankled Americans' growing populism. Van Buren hoped that a system of local, county, and state conventions would produce the desired result, a unified Jackson-Calhoun ticket. Van Buren's plan was no secret. As the National Intelligencer in Washington reported, there are intrigues on foot to place the election of President and Vice President of the United States within the control of a central junta in Washington, of which Mr. Van Buren's happy genius is the ascendant influence. According to the Intelligencer, Van Buren's system of party discipline was designed for one purpose, to control the popular election by means of organized clubs and presses everywhere. And indeed, Jackson's highly coordinated and well-funded campaign launched its opening salvo in the press. In the early 19th century, the newspaper business was flourishing. From 1800 to 1828, the number of publications more than doubled. According to some estimates, there were as many as 600 different newspapers, most with a partisan agenda. Newspaper editors shared their content with editors from other regions. Reporting on reporting was extremely common. Postage was cheap, and for members of Congress, it was free. As a result, newspaper reports, campaign materials, books, and pamphlets spread far and fast. And throughout 1827, pro-Jackson papers sprung up all across the country, from North Carolina to New England. 
It was these publications that led the charge in the Jackson campaign. The United States Telegraph in Washington, Thomas Ritchie's Richmond Inquirer in Virginia, and Albany's Argus in New York, a bullhorn for Martin Van Buren. One Jackson supporter wrote, We have organized our fences in every quarter, and have begun and shall continue without ceasing to pour into every doubtful region all kinds of useful information. The partisan press was viewed as so important that when a Jackson paper in Ohio almost folded under financial strain, a Jackson supporter came to its aid with a gift of $1,500, almost $40,000 today. Adams had many friends in the press too, but the Adams campaign was outmatched, outgunned, and outorganized. In the spring of 1827, foreseeing his own demise, President Adams wrote, My own career is closed. My duties are to prepare for the end. The Jackson campaign was a highly coordinated hierarchy of local, regional, and national committees. At the top, men like Van Buren. Beneath them, a system of committees and subcommittees in almost every state, county, town, and ward, all working toward the same purpose, a Jackson presidency. These committees used the pro-Jackson press as their primary weapon. Each had a direct line to one of the big three, the Argus in New York, the Inquirer in Richmond, and the United States National Telegraph in Washington, whose editor was a pro-Jackson man named Duff Green. In the 1828 contest, Duff would have a big part to play. In March of 1827, an Ohio newspaper, the Cincinnati Gazette, published an article that read, In the summer of 1790, General Jackson prevailed upon the wife of a man of Mercer County, Kentucky, to desert her husband and live with himself in the character of a wife. In the early 1800s, private matters were largely considered off-limits in the public arena. One exception had been Thomas Jefferson, in 1803, Jefferson had been publicly accused in the press of having an affair and fathering children with his slave Sally Hemings. But Jefferson had overcome the scandal and won the election of 1804. Still, Jackson's supporters had cause for concern. The charge was serious. Rachel, wed to Jackson, was also legally wed to this man, Louis Robards. Rachel was accused of bigamy. Jackson was a national hero who had worked hard to cultivate a reputation as a man of morality and virtue. The allegation, true or not, might be seen as a blemish on his honor. It could derail Jackson's campaign, and an attack on his sense of honor might trigger his violent temper. One of his supporters, Senator John Eaton of Tennessee, wrote to Jackson, Everything I have to say is, be cautious, be still, be quiet, and let your friends fight the arduous battle that is before them. Jackson heeded the advice and worked behind the scenes with his advisor, former Judge John Overton of Tennessee, to disprove the allegation. Jackson published relevant documents that indicated he and Rachel had done nothing wrong. When they had married, both Rachel and Jackson were under the impression that Rachel's first husband had divorced her. When it was discovered that Mr. Robards had never executed the divorce, Rachel had secured one from a Virginia court and married Jackson a second time. But there was a hole in this story. There were no records of the first marriage, and this left the door open for Jackson's enemies to accuse Rachel of infidelity and Jackson of stealing another man's wife. The Cincinnati Gazette pounced, asking, Ought a convicted adulteress and her paramour husband to be placed in the highest offices of this free and Christian land? A pro-Jackson paper in Ohio fought back, calling the charges nothing more than base, wanton, and malignant falsehoods. 
But the Gazette escalated the attacks, calling Jackson's mother a common prostitute who was brought to this country by the British soldiers. She afterwards married a mulatto man with whom she had several children, of which number General Jackson is one. The Gazette's invective was more than an assault on Jackson's character. It was an attack on his fitness for office. If Jackson were part black to most 19th century Americans, he would have no right to run for president. When Jackson learned that the Gazette's editor was a friend of Henry Clay, Jackson's surrogate John Eaton confronted Clay and demanded a congressional investigation. Clay owned up to his connection to the Gazette, but denied all involvement in the stories. Jackson wrote a friend saying the attacks on his character were designed to arouse me to some desperate act by which I would fall prostrate before the people. But Jackson didn't take the bait. In his own words, I will curb my feelings until it becomes proper to act. While Jackson exhibited restraint, Duff Green, the editor of the National Telegraph, prepared to use his publication to launch a counterattack. In the final months of the campaign, the fight between the Adams administration and the National Telegraph would go from black and white to flesh and blood. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. It's Wednesday, April 2nd, 1828, in Washington. The guests of Mr. and Mrs. John Quincy Adams gather in the East Room of the White House for one of their famous weekly drawing room parties. The Adamses are generous hosts. They're known to let almost anyone in the front door with or without an invitation. But Reverend Caleb Stetson, a pastor at the First Parish in Medford, Massachusetts, is definitely on the list. He's a longtime acquaintance of the Adams family. So when a group he doesn't recognize walk in the door, Stetson's curiosity is piqued, especially by the intriguing woman at the head of the pack. He pulls his friend John Adams II, President John Quincy Adams' second son and personal secretary aside. May I have a moment? Of course, Reverend. Tell me, who is that lady over there? Adams glances across the room at the group of strangers, then his eyes nearly roll back in his skull. That 
is the wife of one Russell Jarvis, the unfortunate man standing at her side. I don't believe I know that name. Well, consider yourself lucky. Adams launches into something of a diatribe, and he does not modulate the volume of his voice. He's the editorial scribe for The Telegraph here in Washington. As you know, that publication is nothing more than an instrument for my father's enemies. He seems to have gotten under your skin. My father's too. Though father's far too polite to say anything on the matter. Well, surely the president did not extend him an invitation. Jarvis invited himself, no doubt. He's a man entirely bereft of taste and judgment. He's also coming this way. But Adams doesn't relent. He loudly bellows, There is a man who, if he had any idea of propriety in the conduct of a gentleman, ought not to show his face in this house. Stetson leans in, trying his best to end the conversation. Take care, Mr. Adams. He may hear what you say. I do not care if he does. Adams turns, and Jarvis is standing behind him, his face red with anger, fists clenched. Without a word, Jarvis storms from the room, his guests following closely behind. Well, I do believe he heard you. I do believe you're right. Stetson doesn't say another word about the incident, but privately, he's worried John Adams II has just made a grave mistake. Adams has just given the editor of a powerful Washington newspaper motivation. Best case, Jarvis will use the incident to slander the Adams family in the press. Worst case, he'll seek to vindicate his honor in the form of a duel. After securing the blessing of his partner, Duff Green, Jarvis sent a note to John Adams II demanding an apology for the events of April 2nd. Adams refused. Four days later, on April 12th, Jarvis confronted Adams in the congressional rotunda demanding a duel. After a heated exchange, Jarvis grabbed Adams by the nose, struck him, and tried to wrest his cane from him. Adams overpowered Jarvis and chased him away with the cane. They would not fight a duel, mainly because President Adams would use the incident as an opportunity to condemn dueling in Andrew Jackson's history with a bloody practice. Ironically, Adams would find an ally in Henry Clay. Clay encouraged the president to make a statement to Congress. On April 16th, President Adams made a fiery speech calling for Congress to outlaw the archaic practice. In response, the National Telegraph would lambast President Adams and defend Jarvis, calling his actions honorable and calling the president's son the royal puppy. Following that, pro-Jackson newspapers all across the country published the Telegraph's version of events. The president was scorned and his son ridiculed. An investigation would be concluded in the House and a bill to end dueling would be proposed. Jarvis would testify with his lawyer, Duff Green, by his side, but the hearings, like the anti-dueling bill, would go nowhere. In the last six months of the presidential campaign, the war in the press only intensified. Pro-Jackson papers claimed Adams had pimped out young American women to the czar during his time as a diplomat in Russia. Pro-Adams press would rehash Jackson's violent past before and during the War of 1812, the so-called Coffin Handbill made its rounds. The political pamphlet, titled A Short Account of Some of the Bloody Deeds of General Jackson, showed images of the coffins of the six Tennessee militiamen Jackson had executed in 1814. The attacks on Jackson's marriage continued as well. Jackson's supporters continued to fight back, circulating a new defense of Jackson called Vindication, attributed to General Henry Lee, the former governor of Virginia. Vindication recasts the story of Jackson and his wife Rachel in a romantic light, 
painting a picture of Jackson as a hero who rescued an abused woman from her monstrous ex-husband. Jackson's supporters rallied around Rachel and attacked those who defamed her. They invade the domestic sanctuary and with reckless malice drag forth to the public view a virtuous and pious lady to heap upon her venerable head their filthy slanders because she is the chosen wife of the most illustrious of our warriors. The tit-for-tat in the press continued. One New York publication said of Adams, If intellectual powers of the highest grade and cultivated with almost unexampled success contribute to fit a man for the first office in our nation, then it must be admitted that the choice of Mr. Adams was eminently proper. A Jackson paper offered a rebuttal. It is true that General Jackson has not been educated at foreign courts and reared on sweetmeats from the tables of kings and princes. Adams' papers characterized him as a man who could write. Jackson was a man who could fight. In the press and in the minds of many Americans, the election was a referendum on the question of American culture, the common man versus the elite. The New England culture that had produced John Quincy Adams was as foreign to Jackson supporters as the western frontier was to New England, or to the slave aristocracy from which John C. Calhoun had come. Ultimately, it would be a question of just simple electoral math. In the election of 1828, the common man would win the day. Voting took place from late October to early December 1828. Jackson won the electoral vote 178 to 83. Adams carried New England and a portion of the mid-Atlantic states. Jackson dominated the South and the West, winning nearly 60% of the popular vote, making Jackson America's first Western president and the first president not born in Virginia or Massachusetts. And though he won, Jackson had little to celebrate. After his victory, his wife Rachel was not looking forward to leaving Tennessee. Her health was failing, and she knew she would never belong in Washington. She wrote, Even were it not for the many base attempts that have been made to defame the characters of my husband and myself, I could hardly be induced to leave this peaceful and delightful spot. Rachel Jackson died of a heart attack on December 22, 1828, 20 days after her husband was elected president. Jackson blamed her death on his political enemies, including John Quincy Adams. At her funeral, he vowed to never forgive those men who have slandered her character in the press. When Jackson arrived in Washington, he refused to greet Adams at the White House, and Adams did not attend Jackson's inauguration. Jackson had secured his revenge on John Quincy Adams for the so-called corrupt bargain. He had ridden to the White House on the back of a popular movement and a campaign that had promised change in Washington an end to corruption, an expulsion of the permanent political class. During his first term, Jackson would make good on that promise, replacing a significant portion of government officials. But to a large extent, Jackson would not replace these men with qualified public servants. Instead, he would stock the government with friends and advisors loyal to him above all else. During his first term, Andrew Jackson would teach the Washington establishment a hard lesson. In politics, as with any war, to the victor go the spoils. This is episode 11 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1828, The General's Vengeance. On the next episode, the election of 1832, President Andrew Jackson goes to war with the political establishment, the National Republican Party, and another Westerner with a very different vision for America, Henry Clay. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? 
And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.